Escape Pod Episode 220 Today's story Come All Ye Faithful by Robert J. Sawyer Hello and welcome to Escape Pod your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Norm Sherman. The science fiction genre wouldn't be what it is without stories that explore the topic of science and religion. Like so many things in life, the two always seem at odds with each other, despite essentially wanting the same things, because they have such different methodologies. Religions rely on revelation, while science relies on the observable. So, having the two dance and step to the same tune can be about as awkward and unpleasant as, well, watching a geeky scientist slow dance with a Catholic priest. But does it happen? Sure it does. Sometimes. If the scientist has a good wingman and the priest has had a few cosmos in him already. As much as we act like people and positions are cut and dry, they rarely are. Not everyone who votes in the U.S. is a conservative or liberal. Not everyone with a computer uses a Mac or PC, and not everyone who rapes and pillages is a Viking or a pirate. Life is just too complex to hold many real them-versus-us scenarios. There's plenty of thems in your own us, if you think about it, and they probably think it's actually you that's a them, not them. And that leads us into this week's story, Come All Ye Faithful, by Robert J. Sawyer. Robert is one of only seven writers in history to win all three of the science fiction field's top awards for Best Novel of the Year. The Hugo, which he won for Hominids, the Nebula, which he won for The Terminal Experiment, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, which he won for Mind Scan. Robert's latest novel is Wake, first of a trilogy about the World Wide Web gaining consciousness. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid that pop-up blocker would jeopardize our ad revenue. I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. You can find Wake at wakewatchwonder.com, and you can find Rob at sfwriter.com. Now that's a nice URL catch. Rob says that early in his writing career, dinosaurs were his shtick. Four of his first five novels dealt with them, and the great beasts were also all over his first short story collection. But starting with his fifth novel, The Terminal Experiment, his shtick, it seems, has been the conflict between faith and rationality. I'm personally hoping that his next shtick somehow blends it all together with conflicting dinosaurs. The story is read to you by Mike Boris. So put on your spacesuits and get ready to see visions, because it's story time. Come All Ye Faithful by Robert J. Sawyer Read by Mike Boris "'Damn social engineers,' said Boothby, frowning his freckled face. He looked at me as if expecting an objection to the profanity, and seemed disappointed that it didn't rise to the bait. "'As you said earlier,' I replied calmly, "'it doesn't make any practical difference.' He tried to get me again. "'Damn straight! Whether Jody and I just live together or are legally married shouldn't matter one whit to anyone but us!' I wasn't going to give him the pleasure of telling him it mattered to God." I just let him go on. Anyway, he said, spreading hands that were also freckled. Since we have to be married before the company will give us a license to have a baby, Jody's decided she wants the whole shebang. The cake, the fancy reception, the big service. I nodded. 
And that's where I come in. That's right, Padre. It seemed to tickle him to call me that. Only you and Judge Hiromi can perform ceremonies here, and, well, Her Honor's office doesn't have room for a real ceremony, with a lot of attendees, I offered. That's it, crowed Boothby, as if I'd put my finger on a heinous conspiracy. That's exactly it. So you see my predicament, Padre. I nodded. You're an atheist. You don't hold with any religious mumbo-jumbo. But to please your bride-to-be, you're willing to have the ceremony here at St. Teresa's. Right, but don't get the wrong idea about Jody. She's not... He trailed off. Anywhere else on Mars, declaring someone wasn't religious, wasn't a practicing Christian or Muslim or Jew, would be perfectly acceptable. Indeed, would be the expected thing. Scientists, after all, looked askance at anyone who professed religion. It was as socially unacceptable as farting in an airlock. But now Boothby was unsure about giving voice to what, in all other circumstances, would have been an easy disclaimer. He'd stopped in here at St. Teresa's over his lunch hour to see if I would perform the service, but was afraid now that I'd turn him down if he revealed that I was being asked to unite two non-believers in the most holy of institutions. He didn't understand why I was here, why the Archdiocese of New York had put up the money to bring a priest to Mars, despite the worldwide shortage of Catholic clergy. The Roman Catholic Church would always rather see two people married by clergy than living in sin. And so, since touching down at Utopia Planitia, I'd united putative Protestants, secular Jews, and more. And I'd gladly marry Boothby and his fiancée. Not to worry, I said. I'd be honored if you had your ceremony here. Boothby looked relieved. Thank you, he replied. Just, you know, not too many prayers. I forced a smile. Only the bare minimum. Boothby wasn't alone. Almost everyone here thought having me on Mars was a waste of oxygen. But the New York diocese was rich, and they knew that if the church didn't have a presence early on in Bradbury Colony, room would never be made for it. There had been several priests who had wanted this job, many with much better theological credentials than I had. But two things were in my favor. First, I had low food requirements, doing fine on just 1,200 calories a day. And second, I have a Ph.D. in astronomy, and had spent four years with the Vatican Observatory. The stars had been my first love. It was only later that I'd wondered who put them there. Ironically, taking the priest job here on Mars had meant giving up my celestial research, although being an astronomer meant that I could double for one of the more important colonists if he or she happened to get sick. That fact appeased some of those who had tried to prevent my traveling here. It had been a no-brainer for me, studying space from the ground or actually going into space. Still, it seemed as though I was the only person on all of Mars who was really happy that I was here. Hatchem, matchem, and dispatchem. That was the usual lot for clergy. Well, we hadn't had any births yet, although we would soon, and no one had died since I had arrived. That left marriages. Of course, I did perform Mass every Sunday, and people did come out. But it wasn't like a Mass on Earth. Oh, we had a choir, but the people who had joined it all made a point of letting each other know that they weren't religious, they simply liked to sing. And yes, there were some bodies warming the pews, but they seemed just to be looking for something to do. Leisure time activities were mighty scarce on Mars. Perhaps that's why there were so few troubled consciences. There was nothing to get into mischief with. Certainly, no one had yet come for confession. And when we did communion, people always took the wine of which there wasn't much available elsewhere, but I usually had a bunch of wafers left at the end. 
Ah, well. I would do a bang-up job for Boothby and Jody on the wedding, so good that maybe they'd let me perform a baptism later. Father Bailey, said a voice. I turned around, someone else needing me for something, and on a Thursday. Well, well, well. Yes, I said, looking at the young woman. I'm Lonnie Sinclair, she said, from the communication center. What can I do for you, my child? Nothing, she said, but a message came in from Earth to you, scrambled. She held out her hand, proffering a thin white wafer. I took it, thanked her, and waited for her to depart. Then I slipped it into my computer, typed my access code, and watched in astonishment as the message played. Greetings, Father Bailey, said the voice that had identified itself as Cardinal Pirandello of the Vatican's Congregation for the Causes of Saints. I hope all is well with you. The Holy Father sends his special apostolic blessing. Pirandello paused, as if perhaps reluctant to go on. Then, I know that Earth News gets a little play at Bradbury Colony, so perhaps you haven't seen the reports of the supposed miracle at Sidonia. My heart jumped. Pirandello was right about us mostly ignoring the mother planet. It was supposed to make living permanently on another world easier. But Sidonia, why, that was here, on Mars. The cardinal went on. A televangelist based in New Zealand has claimed to have seen the Virgin Mary while viewing Sidonia through a telescope. These new ground-based scopes with their adaptive optics have astonishing resolving power, I'm told. But I guess I don't have to tell you that after all your time at Castle Gandolfo. Anyway, ordinarily, of course, we'd give no credence to such a claim. Putative miracles have a way of working themselves out, after all. But the televangelist in question is Jürgen Emat, who was at seminary fifty years ago with the Holy Father, and is watched by hundreds of millions of Roman Catholics. Emat claims that his vision has relevance to the third secret of Fatima, as you know, Fatima is much on the Holy Father's mind these days, since he intends to canonize Lucia dos Santos next month. Both the postulator and the reinstated Advocatus Diaboli feel this needs to be clarified before Leo XIV visits Portugal for this ceremony. I shifted in my chair, trying to absorb it all in. It would, of course, continued the recorded voice, take a minimum of two years for a properly trained cardinal to travel from the Vatican to Mars. We know you have no special expertise in the area of miracles, but as the highest-ranking Catholic official on Mars, His Holiness requests that you visit Sidonia and prepare a report. Full details of the putative miracle follow. It took some doing. My mere presence was an act of forbearance, I knew, but I managed to finagle the use of one of Bradbury Colony's ground-effect shuttles to go from Utopia Planitia to Sidonia. Of course, I couldn't pilot such a vehicle myself. Elizabeth Chen was at the controls, leaving me most of a day to study. Rome didn't commit itself easily to miracles, I knew. After all, there were charlatans who faked such things, and there was always the possibility of us getting egg on our collective faces. Also, the dogma was that all revelations required for faith were in the scriptures. There was no need for further miracles. I looked out the shuttle's windows. The sun, tiny and dim compared with how it appeared from Earth, was touching the western horizon. I watched it set. The shuttle sped on into the darkness. "'We speak today of the third secret of Fatima,' said Jürgen Emot, robust and red of face at almost eighty, as he looked out at his flock. 
I was watching a playback of his broadcast on my datapad. The third secret, and the miracle I myself have observed. As all of those who are pure of heart know, on May 13, 1917, and again every month of that year until October, three little peasant children saw visions of Our Blessed Lady. The children were Lucia dos Santos, then aged ten, and her cousins Francisco and Jacinta Marto, ages eight and seven. Three prophecies were revealed to the children. The third was known only to a succession of popes until 2000, when, while beatifying the two younger visionaries who had died in childhood, John Paul II ordered the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith to make that secret public, accompanied by what he called an appropriate commentary. Well, the secret is indeed public, and has been for almost seventy years. But that commentary was anything but appropriate, twisting the events in the prophecy to relate to the 1981 attempt on John Paul II's life by Mehmet Ali Agha. No, that interpretation is incorrect, for I myself have had a vision of the true meaning of Fatima. Please, I thought, but I continued to watch. Why did I alone see this? asked Ahmad. Because unlike modern astronomers, who don't bother with eyepieces anymore, I looked upon Mars directly through a telescope rather than on a computer monitor. Holy visions are revealed only to those who gaze directly upon them. An odd thing for a televangelist to say, I thought, as the recording played on. You have to remember, brethren, said Jürgen, that the 1917 visions at Fatima were witnessed by children, and that the only one who survived childhood spent her life a cloistered nun. The same woman Pope Leo XIV intends to consecrate in a few weeks' time. Although she didn't write down the third secret until 1944, she'd seen little of the world in the intervening years. So everything she says has to be reinterpreted in light of that. As Vatican Secretary of State Cardinal Angelo Sodano said upon the occasion of the third secret's release, the text must be interpreted in a symbolic key. Jürgen turned around briefly, and holographic words floated behind them. We saw an angel with a flaming sword in his left hand, flashing. It gave out flames that looked as though they would set the world on fire. Clearly, said Jürgen, indicating the words with his hand, this is a rocket launch. I shook my head in wonder. The words changed and we saw in an immense light that is God, something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it, a bishop dressed in white. Jürgen spread his arms now, appealing for a common sense. Well, how do you recognize a bishop? By his mitre, his liturgical headdress. And what sort of headdress do we associate with odd reflections? The visors on space helmets, and what color are spacesuits? White, always white, to reflect the heat of the sun. Here the children doubtless saw an astronaut. But where? Where? New words replacing old. Passed through a big city, half in ruins. And that, said Jürgen, is our first clue that the vision was specifically of Mars, of the Sidonia region, where, since the days of Viking, mystics have thought they could detect the ruins of a city just west of the so-called Face on Mars.
Gracious Christ, I thought, surely the Vatican can't have sent me off to investigate that. The so-called face had, when photographed later, turned out to be nothing but a series of buttes with chasms running through them. Again the words floated behind Jürgen changed. Beneath the two arms of the cross there were two angels. "'Ah!' said Jürgen, as if he himself were surprised by the revealed text, although doubtless he'd studied it minutely, working up this ridiculous story. "'The famed northern cross,' continued Jürgen, "'part of the constellation of Cygnus, is as clearly visible from Mars' surface as it is from Earth's. And Mars' two moons, Phobos and Deimos, depending on their phases, might appear as two angels beneath the cross.' Might, I thought, and monkeys might fly out of my butt. But Jürgen's audience was taking it all in. He was an old-fashioned preacher, flamboyant mesmerizing, long on rhetoric and short on logic. The kind that, regrettably, had become all too common in Catholicism since Vatican III. The floating words morphed yet again. Two angels, each with a crystal aspersorium in his hand. An aspersorium, said Jürgen, his tone begging indulgence from all those who must already know, is a vessel for holding holy water. And where, brethren, is water more holy than on desiccated Mars? He beamed at his flock. I shook my head. And what, said Jürgen, did the angels Phobos and Demos do with their aspersoria? More words from the third secret appeared behind him in answer. They gathered up the blood of the martyrs. Blood! said Jürgen, raising his bushy white eyebrows in mock surprise. Ah, but again, we have only blessed Sister Lucia's interpretation. Surely what she saw was simply red liquid, or liquid that appeared to be red, and on Mars, with its oxide soil and butterscotch sky, everything appears to be red, even water. Well, he had a point there. The people of Mars dressed in fashions those of Earth would find gaudy in the extreme— just to inject some color other than red into their lives. And when I gazed upon Sidonia, my brethren, on the 150th anniversary of the first appearance of Our Lady of the Rosemary at Fatima, I saw her in all her glory, the Blessed Virgin. How did I know to look at Sidonia, you might ask? Because the words of Our Lady had come to me, telling me to turn my telescope onto Mars. I heard the words in my head late one night, and I knew at once they were from Blessed Mary. I went to my telescope and looked where she had told me to, and nine minutes later I saw her pure and white, a dot of perfection moving about Sidonia. Hear me, my children, nine minutes later. Our Lady's thoughts had come to me instantaneously, but even her most holy radiance had to travel at the speed of light, and Mars that evening was one hundred and sixty million kilometers from Earth. Nine light minutes. I must have dozed off. Elizabeth Chen was standing over me, speaking softly. Father Bailey, Father Bailey, time to get up. I opened my eyes. Liz Chen was plenty fine to look at. Hey, I'm celibate, not dead. But I was unnerved to see her standing here, in the passenger cabin, instead of sitting up front at the controls. It was obvious from the panorama flashing by outside my windows that we were still speeding along a few meters above the Martian surface. I'll gladly put my faith in God, but autopilots give me the willies. Hmm, I said. We're approaching Sidonia. Rise and shine. And give God the glory, glory. All right, I said. I always slept well on Mars. Better than I ever did on Earth. 
Something to do with the 37% gravity, I suppose. We went back into the cabin. I looked out the windows. There, off in the distance, was a side view of the famous face. From this angle, I never would have given it a second glance if I hadn't known its history among crackpots. Well, if we were passing the face, that meant the so-called cityscape was just 20 kilometers southwest of here. It already discussed our travel plans. She'd take us in between the pyramid and the fortress, setting down just outside the city square. I started suiting up. The original names had stuck. The pyramid, the fortress, the city square. Of course, up close, they seemed not in the least artificial. I was bent over now, looking out a window. Kind of sad, isn't it? said Liz, standing behind me, still in her coveralls. People are willing to believe the most outlandish things on the scantest of evidence. There was just a hint of condescension in her tone. Like almost everyone else on Mars, she thought me a fool, and not just for coming out here to Sidonia, but for the things I'd built my whole life around. I straightened up, faced her. You're not coming out? She shook her head. You had your nap on the way here. Now it's my turn. Holler if you need anything. She touched a control, and the inner door of the cylindrical airlock chamber rolled aside, like the stone covering Jesus' sepulcher. What, I wondered, would the mother of our Lord be doing here, on this ancient, desolate world? Of course, apparitions of her were famous for occurring in out-of-the-way places. Lourdes, France, Levang, Vietnam, Fatima, Portugal, Guadalupe, Mexico, all of them were off the beaten track. And yet people did come to these obscure places in their millions, after the fact. It had been a century and a half since the apparitions at Fatima, and that village still attracted five million pilgrims annually. Annually? I mean Earth annually, of course. Only the anal retentive worry about the piddling difference between a terrestrial day and a Martian sol. But the Martian year was twice as long as Earth's. So, Fatima, I guess gets ten million visitors per Martian year. I felt cold as I looked at the landscape of rusty and towering rock faces. It was psychosomatic, I knew. My surface suit, indeed white, as Jürgen Amat had noted, provided perfect temperature control. The city square was just an open area, defined by wind-sculpted sandstone mounds. Although in the earliest photos it had perhaps resembled a piazza, it didn't look special from within it. I walked a few dozen meters, then turned around, the lamp from my helmet piercing the darkness. My footprints stretched out behind me. There were no others. I was hardly the first to visit Sidonia, but, unlike on the moon, dust storms on Mars made such marks transitory. Then I looked up at the night sky. Earth was easy enough to spot. It was always on the ecliptic, of course. And right now was in... My goodness, isn't that a coincidence? It was in Virgo, the constellation of the Virgin. A dazzling blue point, a sapphire outshining even mighty Spica. Of course, Virgo doesn't depict the Mother of Our Lord. The constellation dates back to ancient times. Most likely, it represents the Assyrian fertility goddess Ishtar, or the Greek harvest maiden Persephone. I found myself smiling. Actually, it doesn't depict anything at all. It's just a random smattering of stars. To see a virgin in it was as much a folly as seeing the ruins of an ancient Martian city and the rocks rising up around me. But I knew the, well, not the heavens, but the night sky, like the back of my hand. Once you'd learned to see the patterns, it was almost impossible not to see them. And say, there was Cygnus, and, what do you know, Phobos, and yes, if I squinted, Deimos, too, just beneath it. But no, surely the Holy Virgin had not revealed herself to Jürgen Amot, 
peasant children, yes. The poor and sick, yes. But a televangelist? A rich broadcast preacher? No, that was ridiculous. It wasn't explicitly in Cardinal Pirandello's message, but I knew enough of Vatican politics to understand what was going on. As he'd said, Jürgen Amat had been at seminary with Victorio Lazari, the man who was now known as Leo XIV. Although both were Catholics, they had ended up going down widely different paths, and they were anything but friends. I'd only met the pontiff once, and then late in his life. It was almost impossible to imagine the poised, wise bishop of Rome as a young man. But Jürgen had known him as such, and, my thoughts were my own, as long as I never gave them voice, I was entitled to think whatever I wished, and to know a person in his youth is to know him before he has developed the mask of guile. Jürgen Amat perhaps felt that Victorio Lazari had not deserved to ascend to the Holy See. And now, with this silly announcement of a Martian Marian vision, he was stealing Leo's thunder as the Pope prepared to visit Fatima. Martian. Marian. Funny, I'd never noticed how similar those words were before. The only difference... My God. The only difference is the lowercase t. The cross. In the middle of the word pertaining to Mars. N no, no. I, I shook my head inside the suit's helmet. Ridiculous. A crazy notion. What had I been thinking about? Oh, yes. Emma trying to undermine the Pope. By the time I got back to Utopia Planitia, it would be late Saturday evening. I hadn't thought of a sermon yet, but perhaps that could be the topic. In matters of faith, by definition, the Holy Father was infallible, and those who called themselves Catholics, even celebrities like Jürgen Amat, had to accept that or leave the faith. It wouldn't mean much to the... Yes, I thought of them as my congregation, even sometimes my flock, but of course the group that only half-filled the pews at St. Teresa's each Sunday morn were hardly that. Just the bored, the lonely, and those with nothing better to do. Ah, well, at least I wouldn't be preaching to the converted. I looked around at the barren landscape and took a drink of pure water through the tube in my helmet. The wind howled, plaintive, attenuated, barely audible inside the suit. Of course, I knew I was being unfairly cynical. I did believe with all my heart in Our Lady of the Rosary. I knew, knew as I know my own soul, that she has in the past shown herself to the faithful, and... and I was one of the faithful. Yes, pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall, but I was more faithful than Jürgen Amat. It was true that Buzz Aldrin had taken Holy Communion upon landing on the moon, but I was bringing Jesus' teachings farther than anyone else had, here, in humanity's first baby step out toward the stars. So, Mary, where are you? If you're here, if you're here with us on Mars, then show yourself. My heart is pure, and I'd love to see you. Show yourself, Mother of Jesus. Show yourself, Blessed Virgin. Show yourself. Elizabeth Chen's tone had the same mocking undercurrent as before. Have a nice walk, Father? I nodded. See anything? I handed her my helmet. Mars is an interesting place, I said. There are always things to see. She smiled, a self-satisfied smirk. Don't worry, Father, she said, as she put the helmet away in the suit locker. We'll have you back to Bradbury in plenty of time for Sunday morning. I sat in my office behind my desk, dressed in cassock and clerical collar, facing the camera eye. I took a deep breath, crossed myself, and told the camera to start recording. Cardinal Pirandello, I said, trying to keep my voice from quavering. As requested, I visited Sidonia. The sands of Mars drifted about me, the invisible hand of the thin wind moving them. 
I looked and looked and looked, and then, blessed Cardinal, it happened. I took another deep breath. I saw her, eminence. I saw the Holy Virgin. She appeared to float in front of me, a meter or more off the ground, and she was surrounded by spectral light, as if a rainbow had been bent to the contours of her venerable form. And she spoke to me, and I heard her voice three times over, and yet with each layer nonetheless clear and easily discernible. One in Aramaic, the language our lady spoke in life, the second in Latin, the tongue of our church, and again in beautiful, cultured English. Her voice was like a song, like liquid gold, like pure love, and she said unto me, Simply sending a message to Cardinal Pirandello wouldn't be enough. It might conveniently get lost. Even with the reforms of Vatican III, the Church of Rome was still a bureaucracy, and still protected itself. I took the recording wafer to the communication center myself, handing it to Lonnie Sinclair, the woman who had brought Pirandello's original message to me. "'How would you like this sent, Father?' "'It is of some import,' I said. "'What are my options?' "'Well, I can send it now, although I have to bill the, um, the, the parish, my child.' She nodded, then looked at the wafer. "'And you wanted to go to both of these addresses? The Vatican and CNN?' "'Yes.' She pointed to an illuminated globe of the earth, half embedded in the wall. CNN headquarters is in Atlanta. I can send it to the Vatican right now, but the United States is currently on the far side of Earth. It'll be hours before I can transmit it there. Of course. No, I said, no, then wait. There are times when both Italy and the U.S. simultaneously face Mars, right? Not all of the U.S., but Georgia, yes, a brief period. Wait till then and send the message to both places at the same time. Whatever you say, Father. God bless you, child. Lonnie Sinclair couldn't quite mask her amusement at my words. You're welcome, she replied. Four years have passed. Leo the Fourteenth has passed on, and John Paul the Third is now pontiff. I have no idea if Jürgen Amat approves of him or not. Nor do I care. Dwelling on earthly matters is frowned upon here, after all. Five million people a year still come to Fatima. Millions visit Lourdes and Guadalupe and Levang. And then they go home. Some feeling they have been touched by the Holy Spirit, some saying they've been healed. Millions of faithful haven't made it to Mars. Not yet. That will take time. But tens of thousands have come. And unlike those who visited the other shrines, most of them stay. After traveling for years, the last thing they want to do is turn around and go home. Especially since, by the time they'd arrived here, the propitious alignment of Earth and Mars that made their journey only take two years has changed. It would take much longer to get home if they left shortly after arriving. And so they stay, and make their homes here, and contribute to our community, and come to my masses, not out of boredom, not out of loneliness, but out of belief, belief that miracles do still occur, and can happen as easily off Earth as on it. I am fulfilled, and Mars, I honestly believe, is now a better place. This is a congregation, a flock. I beam out at its members from the pulpit, feeling their warmth, their love. Now I only have one problem left. To lie to Cardinal Pirandello had been a violation of my oath, of the teachings of my faith. But given that I'm the only priest on all of Mars, to whom will I confess my sin?
observing revelations with a telescope, an astronomer priest on a Martian colony named Bradbury. You gotta love that. I think everyone should make a concerted effort this week to use the phrase, that's worse than farting in an airlock. Donald, your table manners are worse than farting in an airlock. Well, that's a quinky dink, Brenda, because your incessant nagging is likewise worse than a fart in an airlock. Airlock farting for the win. So, guess what? I myself have had a vision of the true meaning of Fatima. And, brothers and sisters, I am here to tell you it was a glorious vision indeed. I saw before me a free weekly show bringing all the good people of the world the bestest science fiction they ever heard. Hallelujah, I'm talking about Escape Pod. If you've got any kindness in your heart, you'll take that change in your PayPal account and send it on over via the links at escapepod.org. Whether or not you're religious, you gotta admit that being a televangelist would be a pretty fun gig. So, that's our show. Escape Pod is produced under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can spread the good news to your friends and disciples, but don't change it into wine, fish, loaves, or just don't change it. Our music is used with permission from Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. And our closing quotation comes from Albert Einstein, who said, Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind.